Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now, and welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. This is our weekly tribute to psoriatic arthritis. This week, we're going to have a discussion about controversies in PSA. I want to thank and acknowledge our sponsor, Janssen, for sponsoring this month's activities in PSA. I'd like to ask my um, uh, panelists to um, activate their cameras and join the discussion. International rheumatologist, um, Brisbane, Australia, trying to give a more international perspective to your discussion, Jack. As always, Christopher Richland. Yeah, I'm Christopher Richland, University of Rochester Medical Center rheumatologist. Great to be on such a great panel here. This is exciting. Yeah. Joe. Hi, folks. Uh, Joe Marola, rheumatologist, dermatologist here in Boston. Happy to be with you all. And Daphne. Daphne Gladman, rheumatologist at the University of Toronto in Canada. And I'm very happy to be here. Excellent. And my good buddy, Jose. My good buddy, Jack. Uh, yeah, you have the dream team here, man. Uh, that speaks highly about you, I guess, um, minus myself. Uh, but very happy to be here with friends. Okay, folks, we've got a lot of big brains on here, and I'm glad that I'm not one of them. Uh, I'm going to throw up some questions. Uh, you should certainly feel free to ask each other questions. The ground rules are 30 to 40 seconds each. Um, we want to get, and the audience wants to get your perspective on some of these things that confront us who manage psoriatic arthritis. I'm going to ask the audience that if you have questions, please write them in the Q&A section, not the chat section. We'll monitor that. And we'd like to close out the meeting by taking your questions on tough stuff in psoriatic arthritis. So, um, you know, this week, um, many of you actually have written blogs and contributed to a lot of what we're doing. And I want to thank you for that. Philip Meese wrote a blog this week about methotrexate in PSA. I want you to know within a week, it had a thousand views. The question is, is PSA, I'm sorry, is methotrexate um, still a standard that we all must go through in PSA or should it be part of our past? Daphne, do you want to start? Sure, I'm always happy to talk about methotrexate. So the, the short answer is we have no choice. Most of the jurisdictions, at least in Canada and many places in Europe, still require us to use methotrexate and leflunamide before we can use a biologic agent. But the long answer is that it's not necessary, particularly in context of disease severity. So if somebody has got a lot of actively inflamed joints, certainly if they already have some erosions, it's time to move on. Methotrexate doesn't actually do that well for these types of patients. And if we are to arrest or reverse the, pro the process, we certainly wanna use the best medication we have. And we have a few now. Yeah, Joe, you have got a unique perspective um, by being a dermatologist and rheumatologist. Uh, are, you, are you in agreement? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll just throw out two comments from that perspective, one of which is, you know, the methotrexate, the PASI-75 of methotrexate is about 40% or so, right? I mean, it's from, a, from a, the perspective of a patient who has psoriatic disease with a skin component, really methotrexate has left the dermatology arsenal in, you know, in, in, in large part. I mean, every once in a while it comes up, but we've you know, we've moved really to uh, onto other agents that are much more highly effective, number one. And what's interesting for us in, on the dermatology side is also uh, much heavier use of monotherapy than, you know, when I put my uh, hat on and walk over to the rheumatology clinic where, you know, there's, there's still a, a, a very deep commitment uh, to, you know, concurrent uh, baseline or background DMARD therapy with methotrexate, for example, in that context. So it, it's interesting to see both perspectives and certainly on the room side, on the derm side, uh, you know, uh, vanishing methotrexate use uh, from that perspective. Does anybody think, want to jump in? Chris, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I think that methotrexate definitely has a role. I see the role is changing. I think the SEAM trial helped to do that. While it showed that methotrexate isn't effective, drug in psoriatic arthritis uh, was the first study to really do that, even though there was not placebo anchored. I think that it also told us that we can 
taper methotrexate in patients who responded to etanercept without having worsening of disease. So what we see in our clinic a lot now is if a patient is on a biologic as a monotherapy, let's just say, for example, an anti-TNF, and they're flaring, we might add methotrexate at that point to try an additional, particularly if they're in, you know, in the joints or skin as a way of trying to calm down the disease in a, in a biologic monotherapy rather than necessarily going the other way. Now, the big thing about methotrexate in RA is it lowered cardiovascular risk. Fred Wolf Choi showed methotrexate lowered cardiovascular risk. Has it been shown for psoriatic disease? There is some data on, um, on long-term Lytan Shan in Hong Kong has published some stuff. But I think the key that everyone's saying is there's so many domains methotrexate is inadequate in. Axial retardation of X-ray progression, not particularly good in um, dactylitis, enthesitis. And we've got so many choices that we can now individualise our choice for the domain that the patient has involved in front of us. So... It's historical as much as anything, and it's cost-driven as much as anything, even though most studies have started with methotrexate and then added to it um, when they do their controlled trials. So I like the discussion about domains, and, you know, GRAPA is fabulous for doing domain approach, you know, care, which is a whole gigantic discussion to itself. Ken Gordon did a future of psoriasis therapy and he talked about three things. We need better topicals or different kinds of topicals for the future. Maybe actually looking into intermittent care, which I don't think we can get away with in rheumatology, but they might get away with in dermatology. And then treating specialized areas, like going after different domains. Is that really the future? Is it domain-based therapy or, or approach to therapy the way we should be thinking about, the way Grappa has laid it out? Jose, what's your opinion? Um, I was about to say that the best uh, domain is roomnow.com, uh, <laughs> the website domain. But um, that said, uh, what's my opinion? I don't know. I think this is a very proteic, very, very uh, heterogeneous condition. And when Grappa rightfully so came up with the idea of tackling domains, he did it for a reason, which is unlike rheumatoid, for example, uh, we're dealing with at least five, if not more, uh, domains. And so, uh, you know, uh, yes, historically, I'm with Peter, that methotrexate is part of the history, but it always presumably was um, uh, anti-TNS. And 20 years later, we're still battling the idea that with one anti-cytokine, anti we can uh, 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 combat all of the domains. I, it's not happening. And therefore, the question is, you know, how do you deal with uh, a multi-domain disease with one medication only? If it's methotrexate or anti-DNF or 17, it didn't really pan out so far. So I don't know. I think we're still uh, 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 trying to understand how to deal with that many domains. Chris, there was that great slide that you made um, two years ago that showed what percentage of patients had how many domains? Uh, in, can, can you summarize that in some way? And is that, yeah, that was uh, Alexis and Phil's data from the Corona database. And they showed that uh, the number of patients in this pie chart that had domain involvement in terms of the number of domains and which domains. And, and the vast majority had more than two domains. Many had three and four and sometimes five. So the rheumatologist is frequently confronted with patients who are suffering from pain, inflammation, dysfunction in multiple domains. But I just wanna make another point, and, and, I, and I know Jose and, and Daphne and others agree with this, and that is we need, we think the domain's a really great way to think about a clinic right now, but we need to move beyond the domains and figure out, we have phenotypes, but now we need to figure out mechanisms that are driving those phenotypes. And then we can get to the real pathways that we need to be looking at when a patient presents with a dominant domain involvement. And that's where we need to be, number one. And number two, we need blood biomarkers. It'll tell us which agents are gonna be most effective in that domain based on an understanding of cell populations, cytokines, et cetera. And that's where we need to be headed. And I think that's where we are headed right now. So I think the future looks bright, but we're still stuck in those phenotypes for which as Jose mentioned, we've not made great advances in terms of 
the first biologic that was introduced in Philomese with Jutanercept in 2000. Yeah. Um, are we getting closer? I mean, I, uh, Katie Leung did a nice video on biomarkers and she rattled off a lot of preliminary research. Looks like that maybe we are going to have biomarkers better than CRP to help guide therapy. Absolutely. Certainly. Is, is that needed. a question? Is that a question or a statement, Jack? Because uh, I, I, well, I was surprised by it. So I guess I'm looking for confirmation from the experts. Uh, do, are, are any of you using any biomarkers right now to help you choose therapy? We're not using them yet, but we are investigating them at the moment. Okay. Chris, as the uh, biomarker expert on the PSA side, you know, what's been interesting in Durham, I'm going to, you know, uh, I, I, we've had this conversation many times among among us, which is yeah, at least on the Durham side. Now, I, I there was a time where we talked about having, you know, uh, predictive biomarkers of response in the skin. And I'll be honest, I, I would save it for the rheumatologic domains at present where we have now, you know, 86 percent of people plus you know, getting clear, almost clear with some of our mechanisms. It seems like a lot of the skin or at least plaque psoriasis has, you know, is, is getting appropriately targeted. It seems like it really is going to be in the PSA arena. And I wonder if Chris might comment since he's done so much work. Well, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, good, good point. I think it's not just me. It's uh, Jose has got a really big biomarker program as well. And so does Daphna uh, and, and uh, focusing on a number of different targets, including metabolomic targets, which are really fascinating, given the link between obesity, diabetes, uh, and metabolic syndrome and the psoriatic diseases. You know, Jose is looking at a number of really interesting markers uh, that using more advanced technologies. Are we there yet? No. Are we gaining insights into what might be going on? Yes. And I think the other area, and uh, Jose can mention about this, and I'm very excited in more ways than I ever have been about the future of the microbiome in this disease. And so I think that's something, maybe Jose, you want to comment on that. Yeah, I'll take a step back and I say, um, I'm with Daphne, we're investigating biomarkers. I don't, I don't know what it means for a heterogeneous disease to, to, to try and force a um, specific biomarker. I don't think we're gonna find that. I think what, what we're looking for is precision medicine, you know, giving a, given a, a precision medicine approach, given a certain phenotype, what's the endotype? and vice versa. What Chris is saying is about right. I don't think, and the same with lupus for that matter. I don't think we're going to find a biomarker the way we found, say, double-strand DNA. Um, if you take CCP, for example, people continue to say it's the most specific uh, biomarker in rheumatoid. It's not. Only two-thirds of patients have positive CCP in rheumatoid arthritis. So I think we're going to go somewhere near that story about, you know, dividing diseases into endotypes, as Chris is saying. Uh, in terms of microbiome, there's a lot of work being done at many, many levels. I think most of it comes from the cancer and the IBD literature. They're moving away from predicting disease uh, development, although there's a lot of that. Uh, into understanding uh, how the microbiome modulate the medications we use and how the gut microbiome in particular can predict response to therapy. So that's very uh, exciting. There's uh, some data in the psoriatic diseases coming out. There's a lot of companies investing in this. So it's a very dynamic uh, field. And Chris and others have, you know, prospective uh, data on metabolomics in particular gut metabolomics and peripheral metabolomics showing that as patients progress from psoriasis into PSA, there is a change in some of this, those metabolites that could potentially serve as markers for progression uh, in psoriatic disease in particular. So I've got our first question and it really is, I think the elephant in the room, which is, and we've skirted around this with some of the biomarker discussion, but how do we choose between IL-17, IL-23 inhibitors and psoriatic arthritis? I'm not going to, I think it's an easier question for Joe. I'd like the, the, the rheumatologist, and that includes Joe, the rheumatologist, to try to give some insight as to, is it, do you just go with what you're most familiar with? Um, and if you don't succeed, do you switch within the IL-17 class or within the IL-23 class before you move on? Um, Peter, do you have a, a preference here? 
Look, so uh, the humble clinician in the clinic has a lot of choice now. And so if efficacy is similar across them, and, and to what Jose was saying, some drugs will work for one domain, not for another. So you do individualise. But if they're all pretty equal across the board, efficacy is similar. But I believe there's a safety benefit in the 17 to the 23s over the TNFs we've used for the last 20 years. So we tend to use them before the 17s, unless there's a seven, uh, sorry, they use those 17 to 23s before the TNFs, unless there's a TNF indication like uveitis or IBD. And then it becomes convenience and cost. Uh, the derms love three monthly injections of this, that, and the other. Um, and then the cost, of course, with biosimilars will rewrite everything. So. Um, that's the kind of hierarchy that we look at and then we'll try and individualise based on comorbidities, based on past experience, based on everything else in that mix. So am I right, rest of the audience, rest of the panel here, that 17s and 23s are better at skin and safety and that, but TNF may be better or more preferred with uveitis and IBD and also for bone protective benefit? Yes. I would take, take IBD out of that list, mainly because 1223 and 23 not approved, but will be approved, uh, uh, perhaps. Uh, but the rest, we all agreement for sure. And the but question of joints. But Jack, that doesn't get me closer you... to the 17 versus 23. Daphne, you know the answer. <clears throat> Well, the, uh, the choice in terms of uh, medications is um, very much depends on what's wrong with the patient. So, you know, unless they have back disease, which is major, 23 is pretty good. The 1223 doesn't work quite as well for the joints. It also doesn't work quite as well for the skin as an IL-17. So if the patient has back disease, but doesn't have inflammatory bowel disease concerns, you would go with an IL-17. If they have inflammatory bowel concerns, but don't have a major back issue, you'd go with an IL-23. Now, it is possible that IL-23 does work for inflammatory back disease in psoriatic arthritis, unlike not working in ankylosing spondylitis. So that's a study that's just started now. And so in a couple of years, we'll know the answer to that. But, you know, the, the choice, I, I, I mean, I agree with Peter, people have been used to using TNF inhibitors and that would be the first thing that comes out of the pocket when you, when you see a patient who has primarily joint disease. Right. But if they have significant skin disease, you might want to jump right into an IL-17 or an IL-23. So between, I, good, Chris. No, I totally agree with what Daphne said, Chris. I treat rheumatology based on my learning from Daphne over the years. But uh, one uh, caveat to that with IL-23 inhibition, I think it's a great drug, uh, great safety, is that for the patient with a more heavy arthritis burden, its onset of action is much slower than its onset of action in psoriasis. And so the challenge in today's world is if you have a patient with active arthritis, and let's say they have pretty bad psoriasis as well, ideal patient for a 23 inhibitor. What I find is they are absolutely doing the jig about their psoriasis. What they're saying to me, when is my joint pain going to get better? And we've had to switch many of them to other agents because in today's market, there's such a variety of choices out there. And so I think that that is one of the limitations I've seen in some of my patients with arthritis, so I treat it with an anti-IL-23. So which agent do you think works faster for the joints? In, in which agent, com what compared to what? To, uh, to an IL-23. Which of the IL-23s you mean? No. Which oh, agent better. works better for the joints than an IL-23? Right. Oh, I'm sorry, 17s and uh, TNFs. And, and I'm saying more quickly. I, I'm not saying they're better. You have to have a head-to-head -head trial. For example. 
Yeah, I think it's more. I think it's more rapid onset. But you know, if you're talking about secukinumab, I agree it has the rapid onset within the five weeks of the loading dose. Yeah. But then they lose it. Yes, many do. It's true. Many so, do, and sometimes we spread the dose out to two, twelve, you know, to one hundred and fifty yeah. every two weeks. We do all sorts of things. But you're right. You and there are some patients that lose their response after the loading dose. Same thing with ICSI, which has a really longer loading dose period. But yes, that is definitely something we run into. So can you switch this from between 17s when you start to have the effect wane with ixacizumab? Can you go to secukinumab yeah. or vice versa? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's and with, with the, of the reload. Sorry, Peter. That's been published. There's some reports of case series where right. for whatever reason, secukinumab have stopped. They've switched, and you suggest complete blockade of 17 because it's not an immunogenicity story of aggressive loss of effect. They switch to ICSI and they get a benefit. So I haven't seen it done the other way because one came before the other, but there is efficacy one switching to the other. Agreed. Does anybody have a strong opinion about patients who come in and they have predominance of enthesitis or dactylitis? Are you going to choose which one? A TNF 17s, 23s first. To me, it looks like the data is all the same, and that just may be well, a limitation of the measures. The well, 17 to trying trial. to. Yeah, there's one controlled trial, right? George, Georg Schett did a controlled trial against all anti TNFs versus a 12 23, and he showed the 12 23s led to more patients develop complete resolution of enthesitis. It was published in ARD. I think the challenge, no, it was seminars. I think the challenge there is that the patient population wasn't typical for what we see in PSA. I think the average age was around 60. So I, I think <laughs> I like that study, but I'm a little troubled that it may not be reflective of all patients with psoriatic enthesitis. So it also I wasn't know. quite randomized. What's that? No. It wasn't randomized. It was not randomized. No, right. it was well, yeah. And I'm, small numbers. I'm going to add too, some, some of the subset analyses from spirit head to head, ICSI versus ADA in enthesitis dactylitis, several of those endpoints were statistically significant improvement in enthesitis dactylitis and others of the 17 over TNF. It wasn't just in skin domains. So I do think actually in that particular you know setting, the 17 actually came out looking quite quite good for those domains, Jack. And Siki so, is doing a study with patients enriched with enthesitis and entry to answer that very question. Okay, so we we have to look forward to that. Um, Character study, yeah, head to head study. Uh, I'm not sure because they've finished their their enthesitis study. They've done Achilles tendon. They've done rotator cuff. They've they've looked hard at uh, all kinds of uh, tendons and and uh, entheses. Yeah, that rotator cuff study was a was a head scratcher. So. I, I'm talking about scratching your head. You know, we in rheumatology um, use pretty much the ACR 205070 as primary and secondary endpoints. In dermatology, they use the POSI 7550, then it became, and you know, I always thought that these were limitations of the measures until the dermatologist started getting better and blowing 75 through the roof. And now the standard is uh, posse 90, posse 100, where you're getting 80% posse 90s with 17s and 23s. And, and so the standard measures are no longer have a ceiling effect. Why hasn't that happened with the arthritis? Complexity and heterogeneity. Much more complex. And that measures are very good. Uh, plus plus uh, the measure itself. I mean, uh, you know, the posse, you look at the skin, and you give it a score based on where it is, how bad it is, that sort of thing. When you look at the joints, um, you've got like your ACR measure has got tender and swollen joint count, patient pain, patient hack. And so there, it, 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 it adds a, another dimension which may not necessarily reflect the inflammatory burden of the disease. And so that makes it a little bit more difficult to, to actually push out. But you know, in more recent studies, they're actually using ACR50. 
as as a measure in psoriatic arthritis. And they're I, I getting, the, I, I know they're getting numbers like 50 to 60%, which is what we used to get with the ACR20. But the placebo response has gone up significantly. It's no longer seven, eight, nine percent. Placebo responses are now 30%. Oh, excuse me. The placebo response for the ACR20 in psoriatic arthritis is 30%. Yeah. In fact, there is a recent study there was just, I, I haven't read it yet because it just came yesterday, but it, it actually looks at the placebo response in, in randomized clinical trials, and it has increased significantly over the last uh, couple of decades. I mean, you're right, the initial studies with infliximab and, and etanercept in, in, the, in 2000, 2002, were like 5, 10%. But now the, the placebo response, even for the ACR20, is pretty high. And in fact, the placebo response for the ACR50 is a lot lower. Mm -hmm. Can I? So the delta, the delta is actually not bad at all oh, with okay. the ACR50. Jose. I just beg to differ. Uh, I think we're late in, in synovitis uh, in particular. I think, I think. Um, uh, the burden of disease in psoriasis is such that it can be um, uh, uh, um, taken care of uh, even if you're five, 10 years into the disease process. Uh, psoriatic arthritis and rheumatoid for that matter, uh, all of our clinical trials are, you know, uh, the 15 tender swollen joints and 10 years of disease process. I think, that, you know, ACR 20 or 50, uh, it's fairly good in that particular population. I'll tell you that if you take 10 patients with rheumatoid arthritis that are new onset for the most part and you give them, a, 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 and I'll be controversial just to help the title of this meeting. Um, if you give a gramosolumedrol to those patients, you put 80% of them in remission. Forget about ACR20 or 50. So I don't know that it's a uh, uh, outcome measure per se. I think it is when do we start and what the disease process tells us in terms of when can we reverse it. Um, I, so agree. I, just, I was just going to add in that I, I, the, all of the measures we use, ACR, MDA, PASTAS, you name it, I mean, they're so heavily PRO weighted, pain weighted. I mean, I just saw a recent subset analysis that was presented actually here at the you know, we just had the AAD here in Boston, which was a terrible idea for a meeting in the spring in Boston. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> it was freezing and cold and raining, uh, a la Boston. But they they looked at um, improvement purely at the pain improvement uh, scale. Um, you know, looking at uh, thirty percent improvement, fifty percent improvement, seventy percent improvement in, in pain alone. And you know what? You know what the outcome was across. It, it was essentially our 60-40-20 rule. You saw exactly recapitulated what you see with an ACR 20-50-70. It just, to me, they're just so heavily PRO-weighted, you know, reproducing what the patients are reporting based on pain, global. I, I just, I, I, I agree with everything that's been said. I, I just feel like, you know, it, it speaks to the central sensitization, to the overarching pain, to damage, to so many other features beyond. I, I still think it is very much uh, a function of the outcome measures and the disease state at the point we're catching it. I think everyone's saying the same thing, but our measures are uh, steeply PRO weighted. I mean, the beauty of the PASI is, you know, when we look at PASI improvement, by the way, we still see DLQIs that are not perfect. So patients perfectly clear and their, and their, and their PRO of the skin <laughs> is still not perfect. So I think that's a little bit the disconnect that we're, that we're capturing here when we're looking in the, in the joints. So Joe, how can we change our, I, I completely agree with what you just said. How can we change our clinical trials to more fully capture this? Because, you know, I think I have the sense, having done these clinical trials since, with Phil and me since 2000 and Daphna, that a lot of the reasons patients fail or don't achieve the, the bars we'd like them to, to achieve is, is it is pain, we know that, but where's that pain coming from? Many different sources, centralized pain uh, is a big one, right? Or other chronic changes because of arthritis and damage. And I, it just seems like the trials we're doing are all the same, they're giving us the same crazy answers and we need to do better. How do we do that? Jack said we could answer questions with more questions. So <laughs> if you ask the group, <clears throat> I'll take the privilege. I, I mean, 
is one answer, and, and feel free to shoot this apart, is one answer, you know, some of our novel, increasingly we're getting better and better at some imaging modalities. I have to wonder whether we need, some of the companies need to spend more and do more on, I don't know, is it whole body MRI, is it micro CT? I mean, what, what, it, what can we get that's objective here that we could layer on top of all the other outcomes that we've been using all these years, but might get us at a little bit of, you know, objectivity, maybe even comparative objectivity. I mean, we're still looking at radiographic progression scores. How much discussion have we had about the difference between 92% progression in the placebo group versus 89% progression in the active? And we're, and we're looking at statistical significance at six months versus... I don't know that that's really helping us compare meaningfully between these agents when we have so much complexity and heterogeneity. All the, you know, everyone's talking about sophisticated endotypes, and then we're comparing, you know, 2% on the modified, you know, uh, sharp score. I don't know, imaging? I, I open it up to the group. Is there something we can do there that's more objective? So Philip Conahan has a nice video on the future of imaging, and he, and he said that. He said, maybe we have imaging-based endpoints, uh, primary endpoints. Um, and I think it's novel and, and certainly um, uh, a nice idea, but doesn't it fail to meet the bar that your clinical trial outcomes should approximate what's real in practice? One thousand percent. Throw it. Fair. I don't see I what any other spanner in the works. Um, before we start spending a lot of money on beautiful imaging, I think it's a real issue, and it's hard to recruit patients in North America anymore. They're all bio experienced. Where are most of these trials being done? Eastern Europe, South America. And there are very real issues of people who are supposed to be methotrexate inadequate responders not taking the methotrexate for a million reasons, go into a trial, get given drug, and the placebo arm is dramatically effective. Look at Finch 1, look at some of the BIMI trials, nearly killed the drug. South America, fosfomatinib was killed. And then in these countries, the reimbursement to the recruiting rheumatologist for keeping someone in the trial is enormous compared to their own private practice. And, the, and they keep people in, even in the placebo arm, because standard of care is unaffordable and not available. And they say, if you can only last to 16 weeks, we'll get you active drug. So I think that is a real issue um, for these increasing placebo responses over time. All right, so just to get to Chris's question, anybody else has, has a suggestion for better trial endpoints or designs for the future? Um, Go ahead, I agree with Jose that the imaging might be the route to go. The, the trouble with the imaging is it is expensive. Um, I mean, ultrasound would be great, except there's variability, which may not overcome the variability in clinical assessment. Uh, I think the only imaging that's probably is very expensive, but probably would be most effective, at least in terms of designing a better tool, is the F18 uh, method that um, Michal Meta is using at the NIH to assess inflammation. And he can pick up inflammations in the joints, in the blood vessels, in the skin with, uh, with this technology. It is very expensive, but I think if you use something like that, and learn how to assess people better, both in terms of ultrasound and clinical assessment, then we might be able to get somewhere with getting a better outcome measure. But somebody has to do that study. Jose. And then we're we late. We all have that machine. Each and every time we're late. If we're gonna do beautiful imaging, if we're gonna do whatever we want to do, uh, you know, uh, 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 trips to the moon with these patients that have 10 years of disease and 15 tender swollen. Well, just change the, the outcome, but not the, you know, the target of the disease process. It's late. So, and, is, so, is, and, and so much so, I'm sorry to interrupt, that, that we don't believe in the trials anymore because you know everybody in the audience knows that when you see a psoriatic patient, a rheumatoid patient, it's not that patient. It's the oligoarticular patient with a little bit of psoriasis that needs to be treated. And we don't have the answers. There are no trials for that population. And therefore, 
it's for the regulatory process and we should just do it for the approval and then do trials that are relevant to real life. I th yeah, I think the other thing we haven't talked about is that trials are now making it clear there's a differential response between men and women to these biologics. And that's huge. And that, you know, we're just starting to understand that. So that's one variable. Another variable is the metabolomics of psoriatic disease is very different than rheumatoid arthritis. And I, I, I personally believe that the metabolomics feed in to the inflammation and pain pathway. So how many people in the audience have patients where they treated, have had high BMIs and they have obstructive sleep apnea and you treat them with a biologic for their PSA, the psoriasis improves, their joint pain improves, but they're still in a lot of pain. It's very common that we see this. Where is that pain coming from? How can we better understand it? Are there different ways of managing it other than biologics? And I think that would be, a, that's a major barrier that we really need to better understand in order to improve outcomes in PSA. Why, that's also an issue in PS, I'm in a combined clinic, but not as much. As Joe has mentioned, the pain issue, while it can sometimes be there as, as, as measured in a DLQI, it's not nearly the magnitude that we tend to see in the psoriatic arthritis patients, in my experience anyway. And just for the audience's um, uh, edification, Chris is referring to um, a number of papers, including Alexis's uh, recent paper that men have better outcome scores, women tend to do worse, and probably because women have more pain? They do. Yeah. Uh, well, in the SECU studies, they had high, high disease activity at baseline and didn't respond as well to the same therapy. Yeah. Right. Ax axial spa, too, both PSA and axial spa. I want to switch gears um, and ask a question, uh, take an audience question. Um, uh, practicing country doctor named Arthur Cavanaugh asked a question about uh, a Room Now report that talks about uh, Amgen's recent results with their Eustachinumab biosimilar uh, in plaque psoriasis showing non-inferiority. Um, and then he couples that with the idea that um, tofacitinib down the line, 2026, will become a generic um, will the availability of generics and biosimilars think change the treatment landscape here? You mentioned the TNF biosimilars. I think that will change it. Um, you stick in them up, I don't know. We had a, um, a challenging relationship with you sticking them up. I think the dermatologists had a lab affair and the rheumatologists fairly ignored you sticking them up. So I don't know that the bio, yeah, the payers are going to say, well, if you are going to uh, 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 um, opt in between, you know, uh, a 23 and a, in a, an originator that's a 23 and a biosimilar that's a 1223, they'll go for the uh, 1223. But beyond that, I'm not so sure. But Chris, do you think, or Peter, I don't know, you have all of these biosimilars there. So what we've found in many places, it's halved the cost of biologics from 18,000 down to nine now. And each time one's added, it comes down. In UK, 2,000 pounds by you a year is Humira or Adalimumab. So the, the furphy is that I can treat more patients. Well, I can't while the access rules are just as onerous. As soon as they relax the access rules, we can treat more patients. So the government makes the money, not rheumatology patients. So I think that the biosimilars are going to change the landscape. Um, and we might be told which drug we have to use first when we haven't been told that up to date. And in Asia Pacific, which I try and be a voice for, Think of methotrexate plus TOFA generic, both very cheap, starting on day one. And then as soon as they're in remission, stop the TOFA, keep the methotrexate going, no immunogenicity, restart the TOFA if they flare, works quickly for a couple of weeks and stop again. You may not get safety issues if you use it that way. And you might be able to control many people very cheaply. Yeah, but Peter, you, you do have a unique situation uh, in your country with four biosimilars and wider access to them right now than, than we are dealing with, but that's really intriguing. Daphne, what's been your experience in Canada with biosimilars and psor psoriatic disease? So I, I, I don't know so far, the, the biosimilars that we have are primarily for anti-TNF agents. 
And I don't know that it's made much of a difference. I think that, sure, if, if you decided you're gonna use an anti-TNF agent, then most of the insurance companies and certainly the government insists that we get a biosimilar. They're a lot cheaper. And, and so that's what we're doing. But we're still using an anti-TNF agent because we wanted to use an anti-TNF agent. But if I have selected an IL-17 or an IL-23, there are no biosimilars yet. And therefore I get whatever I, I ordered. But again, as I've mentioned earlier, there would be reasons to use one of those medications that have to do with the other domains of the disease outside of the peripheral arthritis. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that so far they've made a big difference in terms of our choice of drug, or at least choice of family of drug, but they've made a difference in the sense that we have to use them. And we have what, about five different uh, biosimilars for, for etanercept and coming close to five for uh, adalimumab. Yeah. So it's... I just tell my pharmacovigilance nurse, talk to whoever gives you the drug faster. You know, Joe um, um, brought up the issue of imaging um, before. Um, should imaging be a measure of success in psoriatic arthritis? I, I tend to think it, we, that's how we consider it in rheumatoid, but I don't think it's considered that way at all in PSA. We do. We, do. we certainly image everybody mm -hmm. and we image them regularly. And, uh, and we, we certainly aim to prevent radiographic progression. But that sounds like a superlatives rather than a truism, meaning it's an aspiration that we should all do X imaging and be able to show that, but I don't think that that really happens. Am I wrong? Well, there are drugs that demonstrate uh, a reduction in progression of damage. And, and so if, if it comes to one of the other um, considerations when we choose a drug is you'd want to use a, a drug that prevents progression of damage because it's the progression of damage, A, associated with more damage, B, associated with disability, C, associated with other consequences. So, you know, loss of work, loss of income. So there are, I mean, the, it, it is a real thing. The problem that we have is that there are a lot of rheumatologists that are not imaging people. I remember Janet Pope used to say, well, why bother? Just listen to what the patient tells you. Well, the patient doesn't necessarily know what's going to happen in the future. But let me give you the, the Janet Pope rationale, and, and I'm guilty of this uh, as well. The, we know TNF inhibitors are very good at retarding um, total sharp scores and, and erosion scores over time, um, and, and can be shown in fairly short order. Um, but by the time the 17 and 23 drugs come along, um, now it's really hard to prove an x-ray benefit in anybody, and you're talking about you know half a sharp unit difference between the placebo and the active drug, and, and so it, the, the magnitude of change with the 17 and 23 could be a function of how late in the game they're getting on these trials or how little those drugs are able to change the actual x-ray outcomes. And so much so that maybe it's not a good enough reason for me to, to use x-rays as an, as an endpoint with my newer therapies. So I, I would take a different view, Jack. I think that like Daphne and probably many others, everybody else on this panel, we do baseline x-rays in our, in our psoriatic arthritis patients. Should be done. And we look at AP pelvis for axial involvement. And we do ultrasounds as well. We have an ultrasound technician in our clinic, so we're easy to do this for, at baseline. And I think it's important to the patient to know if they have baseline erosions, because that's really a motivator for them to stay on their medications. They're a bit, a bit of a, a higher risk category. Mm -hmm. and, and so we can talk to them about that. We do we repeat imaging? Usually not, uh, because we, we don't think we need to do it if the patient's doing well. If the patient's not doing well, or if they have a weird flare, they're going to get an ultrasound right away, um, probably not an x-ray, 
but um, I think that they can be helpful in flare situations and for helping the clinician know what type of psoriatic arthritis this patient has and what to the end look out for. And that's where I would use them. In terms of you know, endpoints, no, it's not something we do in our practice and repeating x-rays and, and generally once in a while, but not, on, not across the board. Okay. I wanna, so if uh, we see patients early, we don't understand why you need an x-ray very early. And we used ultrasound um, for subclinical synovitis in people with lots of symptoms and nothing to find. Mm -hmm. And we use it in people who we want to taper to see if they've got subclinical synovitis because we know we'll fail if they've got it. Um, so imaging, I was going to ask Daphne, so you're treating someone who's doing beautifully, they're an MDA, their scores are great, they're tolerating their drug, and you x-ray them and find one extra erosion. What are you going to do? Change their biology? What are you going to do if you see one extra erosion over three years of treating them when every other clinical marker, PRO, acute phase reactant is all fine, joint count, MDA. So that's basically why we kind of stopped doing plain X-ray. And we know they're in a clinical trial to tell us that this is not an expensive NSAID. It's a disease-modifying drug. I want to remind the audience that, um, again, put your questions into the Q&A section. Um, I, I want to ask the panel, is there a place for hydroxychloroquine? in the treatment of psoriatic arthritis? Yeah, concomitant lupus. <laughs> Daphne, should we answer that question? Or eczema. <laughs> We've been writing about, we're, we're up, upgrading the up-to-date section, and uh, this is something we've been talking about. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, Daphne, I'll let you answer that question. <laughs> the, the UK well, so guys, the psoriasis side, what, what do you think? Well, I don't know that there was ever a major role for hydroxychloroquine in psoriatic arthritis. In fact, early on, one dermatologist actually published a paper that uh, suggested that um, hydroxychloroquine made the psoriasis worse. Mm -hmm. And so nobody was using hydroxychloroquine for psoriatic arthritis. And then Peter Schur actually, with his fellow wrote a paper, we're going back like 40 years or so, uh, show, uh, showed that it really didn't make, it, it didn't actually aggravate psoriasis. But the truth of the matter is there is no evidence at all, uh, for sure no clinical trials, but even experience evidence that hydroxychloroquine actually works for psoriatic arthritis. Right. Not It's certainly not a drug you wanna consider. It's not like in rheumatoid arthritis, it may have a role. In lupus, for sure it has a role. But in psoriatic arthritis, it does not appear to be effective. And the other drug, sulfasalazine, Dan Clegg did a really great trial back in the 80s, published an ANR out of the Veterans Cooperative uh, study. And he had a, an adequate sample size and the effect size of sulfasalazine was extremely low. Yeah. So I don't really use that drug in PSA, but I see a lot of people out there do, and I'm, I'm surprised. But yeah, you haven't asked us about jack inhibitors, Jack. <laughs> well, I, I, we got an audience question. It says I have a refractory patient um, and the refractory patient, they're treating with uh, etanercept um, and tofacitinib. Are they wrong to do that? Uh, this is a, I assume by a refractory, they mean that they failed multiple, multiple biologics and the patient still has active skin and joint disease. Peter, is that person wrong to use combination biologic and a JAK inhibitor, or even a combination of retanercept plus an IL-17 inhibitor? Well, we've seen um, 17 and TNF in case series. Helen, Helena published some in the UK and Dennis McGonagall. Um, and we've certainly seen the derms where the skin is beautifully controlled by 17 and then the joints aren't good and the TNF's added and with safety. And I think that's the issue we've found in the past you combine biologics and you're going to get safety issues. But 1723 plus TNF plus other drugs is probably going to be fine. UCB have published a BIMI plus um, TNF, certolizumab theirs, in rheumatoid safely. So I think combo is the way to go. Jose's written about this. Joseph's written about this. Um, but we just need to be sure it's safe. And my only concern with that combination would be infection. 
um, both opportunist infection and normal bacterial. And I'd probably get that person in a good spot and then stop one of them, maybe the Xeljans, and re-add it in if they flare. Let me ask each of you, how would you or would you, and how would you use and what would you use in a combination therapy regimen for a refractory patient? Jose. Um, what would I, so we published on this uh, and uh, we're uh, helping, uh, I think most of us on this call, um, Affinity, which is the first clinical trial combining a TNF with a 23. That's by Janssen. Uh, uh, what we do in that particular case that's been described with, uh, with skin psoriasis and, um, and joint, uh, we, stay, we don't necessarily do two effector drugs. And by effector, I mean a JAK, a TNF, or 17. We go immunomodulatory for the skin, either 12, 23, or 23, and then choose an effector uh, either cytokine or 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 jack and and it's typically a tnf we because we get the we get the skin benefit from the 23 or you stick in and so we focus on on the joints with a tnf or or jack mostly a tnf joe what, what do you do <clears throat> yeah i totally agree with jose and others i you know what the, i'd say the scenario it's been coming up the most frequently are the ibd patients who are on infliximab and they get the TNF-induced psoriasis or something else, and they're really TNF-dependent. You know, they absolutely need their anti-TNF. And we are using either 12, 23, or 23 on top of that. And I'll tell you what I like to do is some of them, we park them on it. We've had great responses. But I'm also of the mindset that, you know, we can use it somewhat intermittently. I mean, so I have them use the dose as they need it to clear their skin, wait until they need it again, find out what that interval is like. They're on background baseline therapy. To me, that's been one of the most uh, high yield interventions and where we've really played in the sandbox with combination therapy. Jose knows this in particular. I was particularly excited about this idea of adding a JAK inhibitor to baseline therapy, either as an induction regimen and or for flares. You know, it was our steroid sparing or NSAID sparing agent. We've been talking about this in atopic dermatitis, not to totally shift the conversation, but similarly, they're on a baseline you know, biologic like dupilumab or something, and we use the JAK inhibitor as induction and or flare um, uh, regimen. I, I, I'm intrigued by that, but I have to be honest that some that the recent safety discussions have made me withdraw a bit uh, in terms of how freely I use those uh, in combination. But yeah. Well, we we you're in a you're in a, a very difficult situation here with refractory patients and trying to use off-label therapy and whatnot, but. Daphne, do you have an approach to this? So, you know, again, in my system, it's very difficult to get two expensive drugs. However, I was, there was one patient recently that uh, was getting um, a, a, an, an IL-17 for her skin, but the joints didn't get better. So, in discussing with a dermatologist, we thought we would switch her to an IL-23 and it didn't look like she was getting better. So I said, okay, you continue with the IL-23. I'm going to get a JAK inhibitor for her. And since it, the, the, the uh, prescriptions were coming from two different disciplines, we were hoping that they wouldn't notice. But what happened was, as, as Chris was saying, it took a little bit longer for the joints to improve on the IL-23. And by the time she came back for follow-up a few weeks later, she was much better and she didn't need the JAK inhibitor anymore. So, so I, want, I want to just go back to what Joe said. I have, I have patients, several, who have had TNF inhibitor-induced psoriasis for their, and without bad RA that was being well controlled. And I put them on used to Kinemab and they just did fabulous on both drugs going forward. I mean, that's really amazing. Yeah. And Daphna, what you just described, um, I have been playing that game for a while and maybe it's a little bit different in Texas, but how do I get two drugs approved? Well, I said, they got two diseases. They got psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis and they are nowhere as close to being the same disease. And, and I usually can get away with that. Um, but I think it does help if you have it written by Two different doctors maybe? that's what yeah yeah well i had uh, a very refractory patient that had failed two or three anti-tnfs 
failed both aisle 17 and aisle 23. And so I finally, I just gave him a, a upadacitinib. He came back to the clinic, there's no pain, no active joints, psoriasis is much better. So refractory to what, right? I, I, do, I, I just love to add on to that. I, I do have a handful, I mean, three patients who have been on an IL-23 plus now upadacitinib and have done beautifully, but it, it makes me a little bit, I'm a little bit anxious, you know, but, but they're, they're thrilled. They're, they're happy and we're going to continue it. I mean, uh, so, you know, but end of three. So, so there is a paper published by Jan Dutz, who uh, Daphne knows very well, a ruminoderm up in the Northwest of Canada, where they have 12 patients with combo. And most of those were Jackie's combo biologics and they actually did very well. Uh, it's, a, it's a descriptive study, but worth looking at. I think what we try to do in the combo field is we first start with a biologic plus the premolast quite frequently, which we usually can get. And sometimes you'll capture a patient that way, often not. And if that doesn't work, we now, as, as Daphne was talking about, we go to UPA. And we've had some real captures with that as a monotherapy, including the skin, which has been surprising to me. It shouldn't have been because we know the UPA data and the skin was pretty good in their, in their phase three trials. And then I would be aligned with Jose with a, a 23 plus something else, preferably an anti-TNF, but very hard to get. And we play the derm room game as well, where you know, we have a combined clinic and the room will write one, me, and the derm will write the other. And sometimes we can get that through, but that's not all that often, unfortunately. But this is something we're going to learn more about very soon, I think. So I think most rheumatologists are playing the Aprimolast plus biologic game, mainly because they started with Aprimolast. It wasn't good enough. They added on. The patient did better. But what did they learn from that? Does the patient need to be on Aprimolast in the biologic or just the biologic that they added? Yeah, so we kind of do it the other way around. We have the biologic and then add the apremolast, but, you know. And is that, does that ever work? Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Particularly with psoriasis flares. I was going to say, I think it's, yeah, yeah I agree. There's actually flares. a study in Canada. They, they did a, the dermatologists did a study where they used a combination of a biologic and, uh, and apremolast, and it, it was well-tolerated, and people did much better than, I mean, they didn't use the apremolast to, to start with but they added it to uh, an anti-TNF mostly, but also to other drugs. <clears throat> so in the United States, Jack, that's an equally expensive proposition though, right? I mean, people keep talking about that, but I don't see how is that any different from, you know, a 1223 and a, and a TNF or a 17-inch. It's not, no. financially speaking. It is, and, and, and that's uh, that. therein lies the challenge for the clinician who has to get these therapies for their patients. Okay. Um, can I just ask Joe a quick question? Um, in atopic dermatitis, UPAs and the JAKs are causing acne. We don't see any acne, even our young patients. Why are you getting acne? Yeah, I mean, with, what drugs, Peter? Acne folliculitis. I wonder. For JAKs, especially UPA. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it's quite a, it's quite a, yeah, it's, it's definitely a signal discussed on the derm side. I have a little bit of a suspicion, maybe, maybe, that it's a bit of a detection bias. You know, uh, you're doing these studies in derm clinics and with dermatologists, and maybe they're picking up the acne folliculitis, but absolutely it's a signal across the, uh, you know, the, the, the derm studies in atopic disease and, and, uh, and, and others. It's not just in the atopics. So it's a great question. I, 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 don't, I don't have a good answer for you. By the right. way, I wonder a little bit, you know, the other one combo I've wondered about. We're not there yet, but whether our TIC2 coming will in fact uh, have any different safety uh, uh, profile. I'm particularly intrigued by our ability maybe to add that on to some of our targeted biologics, but we shall see. I think Daphne made an interesting point when she talked about the IL-23 inhibitor. I made the point that they tend to be a little bit slower of onset, but they might be more effective in the longer term, even for arthritis. Mm -hmm. And we've seen some signals like that. So if you can get patients to stay on it, they may have longer and better efficacy over time, but we are, that remains to be seen. We'll, we'll have to have more data on that. All right, folks, it's top of the hour. Let's end. Um, I want to uh, thank Jose and Peter, Chris, uh, Joseph, and Daphna for a really stimulating discussion and a great panel. 
Um, next week, uh, a Tuesday night rheumatology, we're going to have our, another journal club. This one with Artie Cavanaugh and Eric Bruderman. Uh, look for the announcements. Please sign up. Thank you, folks, for being part of this. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody. See you soon. Good morning to Peter. <laughs>